0: The fixation of an idea as a holy image. The art of movement and pictorial art. Pictorial art is a convenient expression, though hardly a happy one. It is wrong to limit the power of representation to painting and sculpture in the face of the fact that it belongs beyond doubt as a major component of the other arts, such as dance and above all literature and is actually lacking only in music. The ability to make images is primeval and it is no accident that the earliest records of human activity show men making pictures. The prehistoric drawings and paintings on the walls of caves are not only evidence of the creative ability of man but also evidence at the same time of his mastery. If we wish to give an account of the importance of images for man, we shall still make a survey primarily of pictures, that is, products of sculpture, painting or drawing. And if we wish to know exactly what an image really means to a man, we shall do well to inquire as to the connection between the image of man and the image of God. In the very ability to make images, there is a religious component. Every art is movement. In art, the objects of life obey a peculiar rhythm. But in the pictorial arts and in architecture, this rhythm is fixed. Movement is checked. Powerful life can speak from a painting or statue, but it is as though the life were caught fast at a particular movement, as though motion were frozen. Words, too, call forth images, but their movement is continuous. The image forms before our eyes and, scarcely completed, is replaced by another. Dance, too, has plastic character, but the image does not remain still. It forms incessantly, only to disintegrate again, equally incessantly. In a painting, in a statue, in a building, on the contrary, movement has passed from a fluid to solid state. This results in very peculiar problems. While Gotthold Lessing discussed in his Laocoon and which have caused our time less given to observation than to technolization to invent the film, or as it was called in our youth, the moving pictures. The film art is imperialistic. It claims both drama and dance for itself. And now through a new technical tour de force has also incorporated words and music. Kierkegaard saw the perfection of art in its growing free of space in order to turn to time. In other words, art is the more perfect, the more purely it is movement. Progressing from space to time, sculpture becomes painting. Music alone has time as an element, but it is lost since it has no ground on which to stand. It pays for its existence with ceaseless movement It sounds in time but fades away at once and has no duration. Thus poetry is perfect art because unlike painting, it does not have to limit itself to the moment, but neither does it vanish with time as does music. One does not have to agree with Kierkegaard's evaluation to admit that he has presented the problem with unusual clarity. In addition, there is the fact that sculpture and painting, I omit architecture here, because in it everything is different, are bound by space, that they fix spatially, that they must interrupt the movement of life, also, perhaps even primarily, have religious significance. I understand this religious significance in a double sense, positively and negatively. Representation as the freezing of the stream of life is a religious act which can be transformed at any moment into the opposite. Image is not likeness. Pictorialization is not the same thing as making a likeness. The man to whom it first occurred to fix permanently that which surrounded him did not intend to create a faithful reproduction. The pictures of men and animals which we have come to know from ancient cultures are neither likenesses nor portraits. At times, it is true. They may be amazingly true to life. Think of the prehistoric representations of animals their behavior and their movements, of the Egyptian geese, of the horses and asses, and much more. But no less frequently, we find renderings which agree with reality only in a few points. Especially where human beings are concerned, representation is by no means true to nature. We think of Negro sculpture of the statues, which seem to us almost hieratic from the old kingdom of Egypt, of the most ancient Greek sagas. Representation is not reproduction, but a second thing is placed before and beside the first. It is the expression of a remarkable double experience peculiar to man regarding the forms which surround him. Art is the signature of man, says Chesterton. Man has the ability and the inclination to invent other forms beside himself and the forms which he comes upon. He creates symbols and, through them, represents the surrounding living reality. He creates representatives of that reality, images in which the form he perceives and the form he creates fall together. An image is a representation, created by man, of a visionary form which, in essential is identical with that form. Ornament. Thus, we are dealing with representation, not reproduction. In primitive art and the art of classical antiquity, this receives clearer expression. One of the oldest forms of pictorial art is surely tattooing. We might think at first that the practice is purely decorative but that is not correct. A pure will to ornament would not agree with primitive thought. Ornament as ornament does not fit into the unity of life and thought, which we know from the primitive structure. We decorate our houses and furniture with ornaments. Primitive man does so too, but for him, the ornament has not only symbolic, but actual meaning. The legs of your chair are decorated with lion claws. The joiner did not give the matter any particular thought, but took the motif of the history from the history of art. In ancient Egypt, the same claw at the foot of a couch is replete with meaning. One rests upon the lion, the sun god, who overcomes death. Thus rest becomes instead of a likeness of death, a prelude to eternal life. Primitive and prehistoric man loved to draw the animals, which he hunted, becoming master over them by depicting them. This agrees with the fact that primitive art often hints at more than it represents. What we call ornament has a very specific meaning on the Australian turungos. We see nothing but lines and circles, but they represent women, houses, and animals. Something similar is true for the oldest, so-called geometric period of Greek vase painting, where every figure has its own meaning. In the oldest Egyptian drawings, it still is not clear whether ships or villages are represented. Thus, the question arose whether this ancient art had religious significance. We want to repeat here what we have said in another context, that the religious character of art is not conditioned by its subject, but by its purpose, by its character. The question then arises, what is its purpose? Why does man go to this trouble? We have seen that we may not picture the primitive man or the man of classical antiquity as a modernist that, something like an artist who creates art for art's sake, for his own pleasure or at most for the enjoyment of the happy few. Primitive and classic art has a clearly recognizable practical purpose. One cannot always do he li- as he likes with men, animals, plants, or other creatures, whether for one's own benefit or to protect one's self from them. For this reason, the movement in which the creature is engaged is fixed in an image. This image represents a second form of that creature. It is believed that everything which happens to the image will also happen to the creature represented. We, too, still speak today of a painting representing something. But we must take this word in its etymological meaning to understand what the actual function of the image is. In our discussion of the dance, we pointed out how primitive man dances to acquire everything. We discussed how primitive the control of power is in drama and the Holy Word, how it strives to exert an influence in one sense of another. On that basis, we called it by nature, magico-religious. We find the same thing here. Whoever influences a creature, be it a god, a man, an animal, or anything else, by means of an image is likewise exercising a religious function. We have a clear instance in the so-called deficciones of Rome. The image of an untrue lover is cursed. It by no means has to be similar. It is a doll which is said to represent the beloved. The person is convinced that the curse will also strike the one represented. For the image is its being, even though it may be its second being. Another example. We all know the name of Tutakhamun, the Egyptian pharaoh, ephemeral successor to the great heretic akhenaten Anak- It is less well known that his name means the living image of the god Amen, and still less that this title does not hint at an exceptional status, but a fixed relationship between the god and the king. The king is the living image of a god. Tut actually means statue. When the king is said to be the living statue of a god, nothing can be meant except that he represents the god as the image does, but through his living form. Whoever sees the god Whoever sees the king sees God. What the king does is the deed of God. Indeed, even the stone and wooden statues in Egypt are living. In the tombs are found, for example, the kawak statues, that is the images of the dead. At the same time is seen the ka, his soul, which is so like him that the two could be confused born at the same time he is, and bearer of his being. This image is treated in a manner befitting the dead man. Food is set before it, it is spoken to, and various actions are performed before it, which are to effect resurrection from death. The same is true, more or less, of all statues of dead kings and and gods. It is the convinced belief of the Egyptian that all incomprehensible phenomena, such as God, a dead man, love, the state, thought, need an anchor in the world of intelligibility, that they are present and effective only when living men force this hold on reality, rather like an antenna that emits radio waves only when electrical energy is influencing it. Thus the Ka, the soul of the dead man, is in reality fixed to the statue and comes to life in it through the force of a living man. Thus wrote H. G. Evers in a profound psychological study of the art of Egyptian sculpture. Greek geometrical ornaments like the realistic prehistoric drawings of animals, are attempts to come nearer to creatures, to control them. From this point, two ways, which have proved viable in all ages, lie open to us. The first is comparable to the monotonous utterance of holy formulas, avoiding any expressiveness The second is analogous to acribia, scrupulous exactness in the recitation of prayers or spells. But from the point of view of the word, both are, by origin and nature, holy action. The first way has as its goal abstraction, nomos, which is never attained. The image takes flight to space or time in lyric poetry, finally becoming music, space becoming time. The second way strives for reality and tries to achieve it by imitation, which it never succeeds in doing. Here the word becomes epic, finally losing its sound and becoming concentrated in pure sculpture. The pictorial arts also choose both directions for themselves in prehistory and early history, as well as in the present where impressionism, expressionism, and cubism alternate with a new objectivity and a new classicism. The first way brings motion more strongly to a halt. This way is thus the one which comes closest to the unity between the fine arts and holy action. This explains why primitive art is often indifferent to the image as it is seen, and why it pays attention to the image only as it is known, as it lives in the imagination. Perspective will hardly be found. In regard to ancient Egyptian art, Heinrich Schaffer has shown that this lack of perspective is no failing, not a cause of not yet having attained that high level which characterizes the art of the Greeks, but is rather to be judged as an essential difference in the conception of the job of representation. Similarly, Evers states that drawing in perspective means a change in the way man is situated in the world, to which he no longer belongs as one component among others, but rather stands in contrast to as an ego, freed from it. This view of the world only became possible with Greek philosophy. Primitive man no longer views the world from his own point of view, but from another world, which provides the norm for this one. That is not a kind of supernatural world, but it is the world as it ought to be, and therefore also is, the world as symbol. He does not deal with the image as he sees it, but with the object as he knows it. He does not determine the relationship of the objects, which he wants to illustrate according to the angle of vision but according to the meaning they have for him. From this attitude, he can then attain to a thoroughgoing realism, such as we are acquainted with from prehistory and from many primitive drawings of the hunt, or on the other hand, to a thoroughgoing stylization and symbolization, as among the Egyptians, who draw the figure of the king twice as large as that of ordinary mortals. The function of imagination is even more pronounced in the case of masks. After our thorough discussion of masks in connection with dance and drama, we can content ourselves here with a few remarks. W. Joseph de Gruyter explains the mask on the basis of the ability of man to multiply himself or a part of himself to project his humanity visibly into the nature which surrounds him. It may be assumed that the mask mask plays belong to the most ancient ritual possessions of all humanity. Now, whoever puts on a mask does not do so for fun. Putting on a mask does not mean a simple disguise. for us in which the individual remains what he is it is the experience of a real transformation the mask is for the head what the skin is for the rest of the body those who wear masks represent what they resemble in the most concrete sense of causing that to reappear which has vanished making it present again in the mask Man creates a second countenance, a second form, and thereby doubles the power which he exercises. This can go so far that the mask becomes the most important thing, the second form becomes the first. This is true not only for the mask, but for every image. For with every representation, an attempt is made to approach what is represented to hold it fast. Imagination and representation. In other words, an image is a cult image, the word cult being used here in the broadest sense of holy action, force as Evers expressed it. A man makes for himself images of gods, men, animals, or other creatures in order that he they may be made to function as needed. Just as in the masked plays, the gods or spirits do what is necessary for man, and animals subject themselves according to human needs of hunt and domestication. As we said, the holy action consists in a man's overpowering a creature by constructing, representing a second masked form. Still, the representation by no means has to resemble the original. In Chinese sacrifices, ancient bronze vessels are used. They date to before the advent of Buddhism, and they were also used by the ancestors. The power principle of the family is embodied in them. Where important events are maintained by inscriptions, By representing ancestors, these vessels guarantee their presence at the sacrifice. When the last member of the Chu dynasty had his sacrificial vessel stolen, he lost contact with his ancestors and thereby also the royal power. Through pictorial representation, an event is confined in a second form thereby assuring its renewed presence and the effectiveness of its power. Freezing motion. The holy action of representation on the one hand brings forces into operation, which on the other hand, it freezes again. Further, the more an image differs from a reproduction of reality, the more it is a religious action. In other words, the more frozen the motion is, the better representation succeeds. No apparent life likeness can help in the process. On the contrary, pictorial representation is a holy action precisely because there were stands before the eyes of the first reality, a second, which in spite of its connection with the first is a different one. It is just this peculiarity of being other that makes representation a religious action. We are touching here on one of the most elementary and, at the same time, most deeply rooted of human experiences. Whoever sees himself in a mirror sees himself and yet sees another, sees another and yet sees himself. The first confrontation with one's self is an enormous revelation for every man. Richard Wagner has pictured this for us, with fine psychological perception in the first act of Siegfried, with words and sounds. One discovers one's self in the other, the other in one's self. If at the same time a man has discovered his ability to make such images, the representation is no longer dependent upon accidental reflection in a brook or lake. But he will emphasize the other in the image more than that which is his own. For he is concerned with influencing what is represented. He presupposes thereby that what is represented is powerful. It pays to get this into one's own service or to make it innocuous. Primitive and classic man thus represent primarily, in fact, almost exclusively, those beings with whose power they are impressed, gods, spirits, kings, animals, In them, man recognizes a power which he does not possess at all, or only partially. If he represents himself, he will emphasize those organs which he looks upon with religious awe because of their wonderful power. This is proved by the female figures, such as the famous so-called Venus of Willendorf many statuettes and drawings of primitive peoples and the innumerable images of women in the most varied cultures. In these representations, the sexual organs are excessively emphasized. The complementary pieces are the ithalic male figures of Indian and Greek art, as well as many primitive works of art. They do not deal with what we call reality, but with the aspect of reality that they may represent, because it is powerful. A clear example are the Hermes figures, which were erected in Greece at squares and along streets. They represent the god Hermes, frequently also another god. They have the head of Hermes, but the rest of the figure is nothing more than a pillar which has been provided with a gigantic phallus. The mutilation of a Hermes, of which Alcibiades and his friends were accused, thus did not consist, as we were tacitly led to believe in school, in the knocking off of noses and ears, but in knocking off the holiest, most important, most representative part of the figure, the phallus. Much evidence even points to the oldest Hermes having no head at all, but consisting only of a phallus on a pillar. Pictorial representation is representation, and thus reproduction of power, fixation, and thus concentration of power. That is the reason why the puppet theatre is once more winning acclaim, and why modern actors, following in the footsteps of the Greeks and Japanese, are once more experimenting with masks. Rigidity better expresses the deepest nature of things than does movement. Aesthetically and humanly, the puppet theatre ranks higher than the cinema. The stiffness of death is more alive than life. Therein lies the secret of the mask. The image of God. The image of God, which most unequivocally attempts to approach the other and the mighty is the clearest example of formation of images in general. As we have seen the primitive artist is intensely interested in what he represents. And this interest is neither purely sentimental, romantic, nor purely visual, aesthetic. His interest is rather conveyed by his entire personality, directing itself toward the entire being of what is represented. From this point of view, we can understand that fear of images, which we meet with so often, in the domain of primitive magic. Prohibition was directed against original images in general, preventing Judaism and Islam from giving birth to any of the pictorial arts. We owe to them the play of lines in arabesque. Through the image, the object appears. It is thus exceedingly dangerous to represent pictorially demonic or divine beings. They are conjured up by drawing them or erecting images of them. Without doubt, the prohibition of images originated in considerations of primitive magic, even if later it received new impetus from awe before the majesty of God. The other side of the same affair is the worship of images. Divine power can be brought into the realm and possession of man by means of illustration. Thou shalt make unto thyself no graven images, for illustration brings one into all too dangerous proximity with stirring life. But on the other hand, We hear that one should make for thyself a god who shall go before thy face. For it is very valuable to bring the powers of life under one's command. We do not need to illustrate here the great importance which has been ascribed to the image of God in the religious worship of all periods. Puritanism thought it could get along without images, but instead wrote books. In order to fulfill their cultic function, images by no means have to be likenesses. A portrait cannot be made of God, but surely a symbol of his presence can. The lamb is just as much an image of Christ as is the good shepherd the law is valid almost everywhere that the least appealing and the least human and the least beautiful images of the gods are wont to be the most holy primitive images of the gods seldom have completely human features a good part of them are fetishes it is by no means self-evident to primitive man that the God is to be pictured as a man. He finds on the contrary, the distance which separates him from the Holy Other to be better expressed by the non-human or semi-human. From the religious point of view, the Greeks ranked the Zoanon, an ancient image of the God made of wood, rough and scarcely human above the works of a Phidias or a Praxiteles. Of the panathenaea the Zoanin of the goddess was carried about in procession and not the glorious work of Phidias. The Roman Catholic knows that the most holy images of Christ, the blessed, a virgin or other saints blackened with age, are only rarely the most important works of art. In Italy, it is the Black Madonnas which work miracles. Not infrequently, popular art is better suited to worship than something that is truly beautiful. In the chapel of a Jesuit monastery, I once saw an ugly conventional pietà. The father who was guiding me said to me that at first A genuine work of art had been placed there, but was later removed. One must have something before which one can pray. Thus, it is possible for faith to prefer the ugly to the beautiful. Because a conventional form better preserves the distance which separates the holy than does the individual vision of the artist. The most ancient image, paradoxical as it may sound, is the fetish. The piece of wood or stone filled with power. From there, the way leads via the semi-image to the pictorial arts in the modern sense of the word. From the point of view of primitive religion, a coarse piece of wood, rude lignum, a geometrical drawing, are images, for they partake of the nature of what they point to. Humanization of form means atheism to the fetishes, for it is just the monstrous, the sinister, which is holy, says Nietzsche with his penetrating insight. The religions of the oldest periods of Rome, Israel, and Islam share this aversion to the human. Yahweh is not represented, not even in the unorthodox forms of worship. The bull of Jeroboam is no image of Yahweh, but rather an empty throne, which stands ready for the God. The Ark of the Covenant is viewed very concretely as the present reality of Yahweh. It is his image, yet not his likeness, but rather his symbol, his empty throne. In this connection, the history of the so-called Matura Buddha is typical. Originally, Buddhism had no images of Buddha, but only the wheel, symbol of its doctrine, the Bodhi tree under which the teacher received illumination and the footsteps of Buddha. In pictorial representations from history, The form of Buddha himself is purposely omitted. Thus, Prince Siddhartha, as he leaves his ancestral dwelling, is represented with a horse and empty saddle. In the pictures, the central figure is always absent. When, under Hellenistic influence, people began to represent the Buddha, two completely different schools emerged. The one, the school of Gandhara, puts its emphasis on human beauty. The other, the school of Mathura, is completely Indian in character. And here the Buddha is often even repulsively ugly. What is important in the latter is not beautiful appearance, but rather making in the image an instrument, yantra, for purification of the soul and the practice of asceticism. complete stasis in Japanese and Chinese art it is very apparent that freezing of motion must be thoroughly carried out if it desires to reach its goal the influencing of the power which resides in the objects surrounding us the pictorial representation of Western cultures is primarily representation of the self since the Greeks has rested on a self-awareness, which results from the idea that man has of himself. In the foreground of our European art stands the human form. Even the art of landscape painting could develop only by excusing its representation of nature, so to speak, through the figures of a few hunters, shepherds, or soldiers. The landscape as such is at any rate a modern invention Japanese art is completely different. Behind this art, there stands the religious experience of the world as a totality, as an uninterrupted continuity. Man also fits into this continuity, but he may not dominate there. He may not rule his environment. In addition, nothing there must stand independent. Everything exists only through and in connection with the whole. Upon this feeling of life rests the so-called framelessness of Japanese painting. There is no boundary. The landscape is not a closed composition, but continues infinitely. For this reason, the Japanese paints on the imakimono, a role of what is actually very impractical material with an inconvenient format. But herein we see the unconscious effort of the ancient artist to point in a very primitive way, yet unmistakably to the uninterrupted continuity of the true form of the world. And Tsuzumi declares emphatically that this consciousness of framelessness is of religious nature. Fixed boundaries with their frozen self-awareness are lacking. Man does not place himself outside the world, but within it. That is clearly expressed in the human figure itself. It is never represented without clothing. The artist can never conceive of the man outside his environment. This is no sovereign man who takes account of the world. In fact, it is not man at all. There is only a play of divine powers in which we too fulfill a function, albeit a subordinate one, and are never in control. At the beginning of Greek art too, the human form is represented clothed. This was true even and especially of the forms of the gods. To walk the streets in Grecian nakedness is by no means universally greek but a discovery of classicism only with time does man discover himself his body in its sovereign beauty and strength and at the same time his spirit the measure of all things the great accomplishment of the greeks is that they discovered man phidias played just as great a part in this as did socrates Clothing is laid aside as belonging to the world. The human form arises in its full independent power. Immediately, Philo will continue the tradition and condemn the body as belonging to the earth. The naked soul then appears in place of the naked body. But in both cases, man asserts himself emphatically in contrast to the world and God. In the Far East, this self-assertion was unknown. The Oriental represents himself and the world with nonpartisan humility. In view of the charming attention to nature, which characterizes Japanese and Chinese art, the human figure gets short shrift. In his book about China, Lin Yutang says, in the representation of man, of course, the Chinese remained far behind. Perhaps there existed among them, too, a valuation of the female, female form as such, but nothing can be seen of this in their painting. The female figures which occur in Kyu Kai Chu and Chu Shichong are not meant to express the beauty of the human body, but the pattern of curves which the artists had observed in wind and waves. The cult of the human and especially the female body is, in my opinion, a quite infallible note of Western art. The same author pictures Chinese intellectual life as humanistic through and through. It is the more remarkable that, strangely enough, no one in China ever thought of calling the human body beautiful. Chinese art is concerned with mountains and seas whose movement must be frozen, perhaps in the original, drastic, primitive sense, in order that they may be usefully employed or warded off, later with the promotion of mystic contemplation. Thus, sculpture is far less respected in China than painting, For with its three dimensions, it comes closer to represented reality than does two-dimensional painting. It is more imitation and less representation. This Chinese point of view is in remarkable agreement with that of the icon painting of Eastern Christendom. Thus thinks the cosmically oriented East. But the West, too, taking man as the point of departure and depending upon him knows that law of pictorial representation, according to which movement is fixed and a reverent distance from the object is preserved. This is shown more clearly in the form in which the Christian West brings to expression humanly the power of God in the figure of Christ, the God-man. A glance at collections like Das Bild Christi im Wanden der Zeiten by Hans Preuss or Le Visage du Christ, for which Pierre Mournand wrote a very significant introduction, is very instructive. The figure of Christ adapts itself to all ages and to all cultures. It forms itself by the most varied nuances of religious conceptions and reveals the lack of the same. In Raphael and Veronese, there is only a completely external connection between the figure of Christ and the divine human power which it is to express. In Rubens, the figure which is taken down from the cross is a good-looking Flemish worker who has fallen from the fifth floor. The more the artist departs from reality, the more real and impressive is the expression of the holy. We have ascertained this a number of times. Those early representations of the crucified, which do not intend to convey the idea of real human suffering, but put the Lord on the cross as a king in the Byzantine regalia, the purple scepter and crown give the greatest impression of holiness. If one would compare to such a royal crucifix, the famous dead Christ of Holben, one would feel the difference between an image which approaches the realm of divine omnipotence and a very skillful, realistic likeness. Instructive also are the scenes from the life of Jesus a collection of Chinese works of art which appeared shortly before the Second World War. They are the well-known motifs which came to the Chinese through mission sermons. But the effect is completely different. There is almost no scene to which the landscape does not contribute. Occasionally, it even plays the major role. There is no background, The holy is here expressed in a very unusual way. Thereby, the human retreats. Very fine, for example, is the representation of the storm on the sea, where the calm figure of Christ and the anxious figures of the disciples clutching one another are completely embedded in the powerful movement of the water. It is a representation of Christ. But we find the real image of christ in the rebellious water which leaps up on all sides with high foaming waves and yet is completely controlled we do not have to turn to china for confirmation of what we have asserted here the european east has understood all of this better than the west even in my stas domini from siena expresses the holy much better than does the usual image of Christ as it developed in the West. Still closer to it comes the Byzantine stasis. In the art of icons, we shall find our statements confirmed. The living image. The image of the God long remains the bearer of the divine life which it represents. It works miracles, it is worshipped, it fell from heaven. The image of Athena Polyas under Cecrops, or it came to its worshippers in a quite extraordinary way. The zoanon of Hercules at Eritrea, which came on board a ship. The sacred stone of the Magna Mater, which was taken into Rome in miraculous fashion. It descends from its pedestal and helps man, Beatrice, or it falls from its pedestal because a powerful God will not stand for it, Dagon. It is bound so that its power may not become too dangerous. In short, it is replete with powerful life. Sometimes divine life is breathed into the image through a kind of consecration. We reverence images which are hallowed by consecration, the Christian apologist Arnobius has a heathen say in defense of idolatry. Where the image lives because a spirit resides within it. The Korowars of New Guinea shelter gods from which oracles are asked. It is still a very long way to the aesthetic in our sense. But the ancient Egyptian Ka statues were already the first good portraits, but they are not that by their own nature. Up to this point, we have ascertained an obvious unity between the holy and the beautiful image. From these latter observations, there arises now a differentiation. If we examine the outward points of contact between the fine arts and religion, We shall be amazed to see that here a greater gulf opens between art and religion than where both come into open conflict. Iconomaki is a religious phenomenon